Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 1. While you're turning to that passage in the Word of God, there is an announcement that in behalf of the elders I need to make, and that is that uh, we've been disappointed during this past week in that we have uh, heard from our brother Drew Sparks that it, it looks like he's going to be uh, candidating with a different church that's just real close by, not too, just the next state over from where he was. It was a church that uh, he's had a lot of familiarity with. His, his brother went to school in that town, and, and uh, he didn't know that there was an interest in him. And it appears that when we had to cancel back in January, that that opened up that door for him to go minister there. And so rather than have to go through all the testing and all that he has to do to get here, at least for the time being, it does not appear that we're going to have him visit among us in coming weeks. So as we continue to pray, we know that God knows our needs and knows the needs of that church out there and his will. It will be perfect and right and good. Please follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 1, the first five verses. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God also called the light day, and the darkness He called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Before we look at uh, verses 3 through 5 in particular, let us pray for the grace of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you are indeed pure light. You are the radiance of all lights. We do bless you that you are pure and holy. All your ways are bright and luminous and glorious. And we pray that as we consider the creation of light upon the earth, as in the way in which it reflects your glory, we do pray that you would be pleased to enable us to see things that can only be seen by the power and the grace of your Spirit. Send him, we do pray, to illumine our hearts and minds, to see our Savior, to see you, and to see that which you would have to see in front of us in our lives. Bless us, we do pray, even now, as we open up and hear your word. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. After telling us of the absolute beginning of the universe in verse 1, in verses 2 through 21, or first through verse 31, I should say, these verses relate a process that involves six days in which God formed and shaped the material mass of the earth, transforming it from its original unstructured form into a beautiful home for the human race. The German commentator Gerhard von Rad, he has referred to this process as the turning of a chaos into a cosmos. And a crude illustration, perhaps, of the contrast between the chaos of verse 2 
and the cosmos of verse 31, where everything is perfectly made and God sees it and he sees that it's good. A illustration might be the contrast between first going into a workshop that is piled high indiscriminately with tools and materials haphazardly thrown into big heaps. And then after a while, going from that scene of chaos to an immaculately beautiful Georgian mansion with all the furniture and decorations elegantly appointed in their perfect places. Verse 2 tells us what the earth was like before God began to shape it into the perfect cosmos which we find at the end of the chapter. The beginning of that verse stresses two imperfections that characterize the original creation of the earth or condition of the earth. It was, verse 2 tells us, without form, and there's the Hebrew word tohu, and it was void, bohu. And so there's those two rhyming words that speak of it being without form and void. And the first of these Hebrew words, tohu, translated without form or formless in many versions, it can also be translated desolation or waste. In Isaiah 45, 18, we are told that the earth was not created in order that it might be a tohu, a desolation or emptiness. In Job 12, 24, in Psalm 107, it's translated chaos or trackless waste. And as Alders notes, the basic idea of the word is a state of wildness because nothing is there. And thus it depicts the loneliness and the forsakenness of a barren desert. That's the nature of this word, tohu. And the second descriptive word in verse 2 is bohu, translated void or empty. God's purpose in creating the earth was not that it would remain empty, but that rather it would be inhabited. It would be not like all the pictures we're getting from Mars, in which, oh, we're going there to find what, a few rocks? And you look around, it's, oh, wow, we have a 360-degree view now. And so we see more rocks. We saw a few rocks before, we're seeing a lot more rocks. Well, obviously, God's intention for the earth was not that it just be a barren, forsaken desert, empty of all life. In its original condition, though, it was not habitable. And so it was empty. It needed to be shaped and, and formed. And the rest of the chapter describes how God remedied these two imperfections. Originally, it was tohu, without form. So during the first three days, God forms it. He shapes it. He, that which was without form, he forms. He corrects it in those first three days. And then in days four through six, we are told how God then filled the earth. So the chapter divides itself into two parts, how God formed the earth on days one through three, and then how God filled the earth on days four through six. Now verse two adds this about the unformed state of the original earth, that darkness was on the face of the deep. Originally, it was a chaotic mix of water and mud, and it was characterized as the deep, as just a deep oceanic, as it were, soup, muddy soup that uh, was on. That was full of darkness over the face of the deep. And in a planet surrounded by absolute darkness, there can be no life. Now, one of the most 
fascinating episodes of the planet Earth of video uh, documentaries is the episode in which one of these pressure-resistant submarines have descended to the bottom of the ocean and that they have explored and found species they never knew existed before. And these are creatures that live where there's not even the faintest glimmer of light that reaches the bottom of the ocean in these deep places. The videos of these creatures are some of the most stunning things I've ever seen in my life. Some of these creatures are luminescent. Some of them flashing luminescence. Some of them like pencils dancing up and down and flashing their lights. And many of them completely blind. Among these creatures is the Ikoria, a jellyfish with translucent luminescent body and tentacles reaching up to 120 feet. And then there's the black dragonfish with terrifying razor-sharp teeth. And it has luminescent organs around its belly. And it ships the luminescence in order to deceive predators as to exactly where it is and what part of it is here or there. And there is also the toothy anglerfish. It has terrifying rows of needle-like teeth with a sort of a fishing pole that protrudes from its head. And out of the end of that pole, it has bacteria that are millions of cells of bacteria that are luminescent to attract prey. And the prey will go after it, and instantly it grabs that prey. There's also sharks, completely blind. But they have such a keen sense of smell that if a whale sense the carcass sinks to the bottom, for miles they can smell it even through the miles of the ocean water that's around them. And there's also giant spider crabs, for instance, that have a leg span of up to 12 feet. But none of these creatures could ever live down there apart from the nutrients that settle down from the surface. There's no light there, you see. But the nutrition that they actually get came from where there was light to begin with. And even the creatures that are in subterranean caves where there is total darkness, there is nevertheless a food that settles down through the water that seeps through the earth and so forth. And therefore, even in those places, God has put unique uh, little creatures that make it there in those places. And... For the abundant forms of living creatures that are going to populate the sea of the earth and the land of the earth, the first requirement, therefore, was light. Light is absolutely necessary for life. Now, in the New Testament, the creation of light on the first day of the original creation, the New Testament makes it very plain that this light on the first day, it is a pattern or a paradigm for the creation of spiritual light in the new creation. And that is when a spirit is brought out of darkness into the light of the gospel. The divine burst of light into the original darkness of the universe. This is a model of God's saving work in opening up darkened hearts and giving them the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. And in your notes, you have put down three references, and the most important being 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul tells us that Satan has blinded unbelievers in order that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ might not shine upon them. And when the gospel was preached to those of us who have believed, at work 
was as it's put there in verse 6, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. A clear reference to Genesis 1. The God that commanded light in the midst of darkness to shine. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we read the result of this in Ephesians 5.8 where he says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And part of that new creation is that which God did on the first day of the old creation, the creation of light. Now, prior to our conversion, dear people, our hearts were very much like what we read in verse 2, in a chaotic, a dark state. Our sinful hearts were a state of chaos and disaster. And also, just as in the first state of the earth, a thick darkness reigned in our hearts, a darkness that could be felt as it was in Egypt. And even those of us who were raised in Christian homes, we had hearts by nature in which the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus had not entered. We had darkened hearts, no matter how many sermons that we had heard. Ephesians 5 puts it this way, you were once darkness. Now all of us, we would have perished in this darkness apart from that which took place at a certain point in our lives when God said, let there be light. And when the light of the glory of Christ burst into the darkness of our hearts. And at that moment, we were transferred Transformed, we who once were darkness, as it were the very embodiment of darkness, you who were darkness, now are light in the Lord. Now perhaps there are some here this morning whose hearts are still dark. You've heard a lot of sermons, but the light of Jesus isn't in your heart yet. And hovering over your hearts, nevertheless, perhaps, is the Holy Spirit. And may this be the day which the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus would shine into your hearts. Now for these reasons, I don't think that I'm stretching Genesis 1 beyond its intention, the intention of the Holy Spirit, when I seek in this sermon to draw out some amazing parallels that exist between the creation of light in the old creation and the creation of light in the new creation. And at various points, I'm going to be passing on some of the thoughts provided by C.H. Spurgeon in his sermon on this passage. Well, as we look at what we have in these three verses, in the first place, we have what we've called a divine proclamation. In verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is the first instance in this chapter of creation by fiat. Now the Latin Vulgate translation for the Hebrew, the Hebrew that's translated in our versions, let there be light. The Latin Vulgate of that, of that little, little statement is fiat lux. And lux is the word for light. And fiat stands for let there be. And it's this very phrase, Genesis 1 through, or 1 3, it's this phrase in Latin, lux, fiat, that has given rise to the phrase creation by fiat. 
Now, what is a fiat? A fiat is an authoritative decree or proclamation. And therefore, creation by fiat is creation by an authoritative word or command. On the first day of creation, God shattered the darkness by merely speaking the words, let there be light. His awesome, explosive power was dramatically demonstrated by the utterance of a command. And this command is only four words in English, but only two in Hebrew. And by a mere verbal fiat, light bursts into the formless, empty, dark world. Now in the Hebrew, the command is in a jussive form. And by using the jussive form, a speaker imposes his will upon another, another entity. And furthermore, the jussive anticipates action that's going to take place. It's a command that expects the action to follow. It stresses the immediacy of the completion of this event. The moment God spoke, blazing light burst into the world. This is amazing. When Moses saw a bush in the wilderness, and he looked at it for a little while, he could see that it was burning, but it wasn't burning away. It wasn't being consumed. He says, I've got to go and look at this thing. He says, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush doesn't burn? And likewise, as we think of the creation of massive floods of light illuminating the earth, this is something that deserves a careful look. And so I want to put out, point out six features of this creative work. In the first place, it was a needful work. We're still talking about the proclamation. And this proclamation was a needful work. The existence of light is the first requirement for the creation of anything else. Likewise, in the new creation, the very first thing that you and I need in our darkened hearts is light. It was light, dear people, that first showed us the sinfulness of our own hearts. It was light that showed us our lost condition. And by nature, we think that we're not as bad as other people are. We're like that Pharisee that went into the temple to pray, and he began by praising God that he wasn't like other people. Or maybe as an unconverted person, we think we're actually better than the Christians. Because we see that they don't always do what they say. And there's some hypocrisy that we see. And we're not like that. We're not hypocrites. So we're just not going to become Christians. We're, just, we're better than the Christians, you see. And so we have our own little version of Pharisaic pride. But when the divine light shines into our hearts, we begin to see how far short we have fallen from the glory of God and from fulfilling God's law. We see that we have come terribly short of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have come terribly short of loving our neighbor consistently as our own selves. And above all, when the light of the cross shines also into our hearts, we see the exceeding sinfulness of, Christ, of, of, of sin. It's when we see Christ against the cross and what it costs to deal with that sin, we see how sinful sin is. No one ever knows Christ until the light of God shines upon the cross. You can look at a picture of the bleeding, dying Jesus. You can look at a crucifix. You can read a poem about it. You can think about it. 
And you can read the story of his terrible scourging and the crucifixion. But you have not seen the Savior in a saving way until the Holy Spirit has shown into your heart to show you how Jesus was, revealed, was, was offered as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinners, even for you, suffering in your place, enduring your hell, and showing you the very Savior that you need. But until that moment comes, you see, your heart is still in darkness. This is a most needful work. You will never be saved if you don't receive this light. And then secondly, this divine proclamation was an early work. Light was created on the very first day. Not the second, not the third, not the fourth day. And likewise, in salvation, one of the very first things that the Holy Spirit does in the heart of the lost sinner is to give him or her a sight of his or her lost condition. And if you're still saved, it's my prayer that, that you will persevere in this and if you're still not saved that the Holy Spirit will shine into your hearts and he will show you that you're so lost so lost that only Jesus can save you from your sin now it could be that you are here not because you want to be here and it could be you think my sermons are too long could be that you think that I'm kind of boring and and hard to listen to sometimes. And you can think all these things about my sermons, but it doesn't really bother me very much because you can't say or think anything about me that is worse than what I know about it myself. So it really doesn't bother me that much what you think about me or what you think about my sermon, even about this sermon right now. But what I do care about, my friend, is this. The devil uses such things, such thoughts, as an excuse in your heart for not hearing the words of life and being saved. That I care about. I care that you are still lost. And so I ask you, have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Have you looked at Jesus to save you? Have you seen the glory of God in that gory, bloody face and that battered, bloody Lord Jesus? Have you, like the thief that hung beside the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Have you seen him in that way? He saw the glory, the Messiah there. He looked to him for salvation. And this is where salvation begins. It begins by seeing yourselves as being just as lost and deserving of condemnation as that murderer hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And so this was, you see, a very early work. This is what begins. This is how we are saved. And then, thirdly, this proclamation, or this fiat, it was a divine work. In Genesis 1-3, we read these words, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now the name for God that's used there in the original is the Hebrew word Elohim. And this name is used over 35 times in just this one chapter alone. And I think when God uses his name 35 times in one chapter, we should pay attention. What does the name mean? What does it reveal about the creator? 
It's the same name for God that's used in the very first words of this chapter. And actually the very first words of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's a name that assumes God's existence prior to creation. Before this, in the beginning, before that beginning of everything else, there was God. There was Elohim. And so the name Elohim assumes his prior existence. And it establishes a transcendent priority. And it establishes his absolute uniqueness, a separation from all the rest of creation. It proclaims the power of the one who stands outside of space and time and calls into existence the things which are not. We should also notice that the name Elohim is a plural noun. And in the context of speaking of pagan gods, this could be translated, therefore, gods, plural. But when it's used of Israel's God, the God of creation, it's always translated in the singular, God, not translated in the plural, gods. And the plural, in this sense, is an intensive plural. It means that the person or thing being spoken of thoroughly is characterized by the the qualities of the noun. And thus Israel's God fully partakes of deity in every way. He is God, God emphatically God, in other words. He is the very definition of true deity. And a work of creation therefore described in Genesis 1 can only be accomplished by the one true and living God. This is a divine work. In like manner, the creation of saving light in the heart of a sinner This can only be done by God. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, there are some of you here this morning. I've prayed for you hundreds of times. Prayed for you in the morning as I've gotten on my knees hundreds of times. But I can't put the the light of God into your heart by those prayers. Only God can do this. You've seen perhaps from time to time my tears as I've preached, but rivers of tears can't put the light of God into your heart. God only can do that. I can't do it. Even if I was able to describe the glories of Christ better than any preacher you have ever heard in your life, I can't cause the glory of God in the face of Jesus to shine into your heart. This is a divine work that only God can do. And you notice with me, fourthly, also, that it is a spoken work. This aspect of creation took place by means of God's speaking. This was God's method throughout the creation week. Ten times in this chapter we read the words, And God said. Again and again, God spoke, And the moment he spoke, it was done. Again and again, the sudden burst, you see, of creation. This isn't this day or this represents this age in which all these things took place over millions of years. No, he spoke and suddenly it was done. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast, Psalm 33. Now when you and I speak, 
Our words are the expression of our thoughts. Likewise, God's speech is an expression of his thoughts. And with increasing complexity throughout the creation week, God's thoughts are accomplishing, you see, his perfect will with respect to the complex, all the complexities of that which he creates. The world contains an astonishing amount of information. In the trillions of cells that are in your body alone, each cell's nucleus contains a coded database that has much more information in that little cell than the 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's how complicated you are. And all of this bears witness to the infinite information stored into God's mind. And it's from that vast store of that information, he communicates that information as he, as he creates. His thoughts are expressed through words. And it's done. And this also bears witness to the great ease with which God created all things. Now when I write, it's usually with great struggle. There's a certain enjoyment that I have in, in working, on writing. But many times it's, it's brutal struggle. I put it down this way, I can't, it, doesn't look, or it doesn't sound good that way. I try to write it that way, and I'll write it maybe two or three times and finally I'll move on uh, to the next sentence. And it won't be until I come back perhaps the next day to read over the sentence, then I'll think of another way that really is the better way of, of putting what I was trying to say. Composers, they go through the intense struggles of a similar nature when they compose music. But God does it with great ease. C.S. Lewis attempted to capture the ease and joy of God's creation by his word in his Narnia Chronicles. In his magician's nephew, he has Aslan creating the universe. And Aslan's mouth is wide open in song. And as he sings, the color green begins to form around his feet. And it then spreads out into a pool all around Aslan. And then the flowers and then the heather appear on the hillside and more and more out beyond him. And as the tempo of the music picks up, showers of birds fly out of a tree and butterflies begin to flit about. And then comes the great celebration as the song breaks into an even wider hymn to the glory of God. Now only a God that is great as the mighty creator could speak light into the darkness of the primeval earth. And likewise, only he, the almighty word, the uncreated light, only he is able to speak into the darkness of the soul of the smallest child to give saving light or even the greatest king in both cases, the instrument of this transforming illumination is his spoken word. And his word never returns to him void, we read in Isaiah 55. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, we read in Romans 10. And Christ is God's essential word, and it's the preaching of Christ. Through this, the divine light penetrates dark hearts. If I preach my thoughts... And not God's word, dear people. No light goes with that. But when by his word, which especially is the word of Christ, 
When God uses that word to speak into your heart, the darkness of your heart begins to be light. Sin is exposed. The glory of Christ is seen. And repentance and faith follow. And so I trust you can see that in a remarkable way, what we read here, this spoken work testifies of the amazing power and wisdom of God. In the fifth place, as we still think of this proclamation, it was an instantaneous work. The Hebrew suggests this far better than our translations. I said earlier that in Hebrew, the fiat, let there be light, it's only two words in Hebrew, four words in English, but two in Hebrew. Now we could translate the command and the result by putting it into two English words. It could be this, light be, light was. Strip right down to the bare essence. That's what the Hebrew says. Light be, light was. And just as in the original creation, the divine creative work of imparting light into the darkness of the human heart, this is instantaneous. Now for some time, the Holy Spirit may have been hovering over your heart to prepare your heart, just as he brooded over the dark chaos of the original world. But at the moment of, create, of regeneration, this takes place in a flash. It's instantaneous. The sinner passes from darkness to light, from death to life in a moment. You remember the case of Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to Damascus. He's foaming at the mouth with threats at Jesus' disciples. He wants them to be dead. He wants them at least to be put in prison. But when Jesus appeared to him on the way, in a moment, that divine light shone into his heart. And likewise with you who have believed. There was a moment in which you were once dead. And you instantly, at that moment, you became alive. Yet one moment you were in darkness. Darkness covered the depths of your heart, just like the face of the deep in Genesis chapter 1. But light began to, light shone into your heart. And in a moment, you see. You were filled with light, and you knew the Lord Jesus, and you began to see clearly. And oh, that God, that God would impart that kind of light to some dark heart here this morning. I pray that this would be the day when he would shine into your heart, if it's still dark. One more thing before we move on. It was an irresistible work. When God speaks, darkness must give way. Some people talk about it as if it's man's will that's omnipotent and irresistible. But it is God's will, God's spoken word that's irresistible. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Well, these are some of the features of the divine proclamation. But now I want you to notice with me our second main heading and I can see we're not going to get through all of our heads this morning, get, get as far as we can, hopefully at least the first three main heads. But with a little less time here, we want to notice in the second place the divine observation. We find this being mentioned in verse 4 at the beginning, God saw the light. Now doesn't God see everything? Of course he does. God is omniscient. He sees it all. 
So what does it say? That he, uh, what is it saying here in particular? When it says God saw the light, obviously it means more than God just sees the light like He sees everything else. The words indicate that God saw the light with special interest. A bird watcher, a bird watcher looking intently with his binoculars up into the trees, he sees a species he's never seen before. He's been waiting for months to be able to see that species and mark it down in his, his book that he saw this bird. And, and, and he, he sees that and he watches that particular one with great delight and special interest. You mothers, I think you can relate to this. You get a, a class picture of your child that comes back with maybe, the, maybe at the end of the year or something like that, the, the pictures are taken of the whole class together. But what do you look for? What do you, you study all the faces in that, in that picture. What do, you, what do you look at? You look for your little one. That's the one that interests you when you look at that picture. And so when we read, and God saw the light, we understand that he sees it with delight. He sees it with complacency. He gazes upon it with pleasure. His creation, it wasn't yet what it's going to be after the six days. But it was the first stage of his created work. And he was pleased with what he saw. And likewise, God sees every one of those in whose heart the light of the glory of God has begun to shine in the face of Jesus. He sees what he's done there. And he sees it with great pleasure. And so, dear brother, dear sister, perhaps you've come to this, this worship service and you're, you're glad that people can't read what your heart is like, what you've been like during this past week. You've been discouraged over your, 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 in the fight against sin. And it, it greatly disturbs you. And you're groaning and you're sighing over your indwelling sin. And yet, even though that is the case with you, the Lord sees the work of his hand in your heart. He sees the light that he's put there. And he's pleased with what he sees. Satan sees the light. Satan hates that light. He wants to quench that light. But feeble though it might be, God sees it. He's put it there. And he preserves it. And he delights in it. Now sometimes you can't see the light. But it's better if God sees it than if you see it. It's better that God see it in you, that then, then you could see maybe the uh, re and recognize the illumination and the grace of the of, of the new creation in your own heart is better for, for God to see it. And it would be encouraging. Yes, it would be good for you to receive it, it because your assurance is connected to seeing God's work of grace in your heart. But we have this assurance: the Lord knows who are His. Now, somebody else might look at you, and somebody might say, "What a fine Christian he is." He's always there whenever the church doors are open. He leads in prayer. He puts money in the, in, the, in, the, in the plate. He has a good job. He pays his taxes. What a Christian he is. And yet you might be a hypocrite. And you might be totally lost. And yet on the outside, you see, it looks like you're really good. It looks like something's transformed you. But it would be far better to be like that tax collector that can't see the grace in his heart. He stands afar off. He can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. 
He beats his breast. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And light had shone in that man's heart. He began to see his sin. The Lord saw it. And the Lord recognized it. And the Lord was pleased. And so, dear brother, dear sister, the Lord looks upon the work of grace in your heart and he's pleased. It's noteworthy that in the New Testament we find the apostles mentioning various virtues of the saints. He writes to this church, Paul does, or, or that church, and he praises God for the faith and hope and love and some of the graces he mentions them and some of the specifics he, he goes on to add. But it's interesting that the apostles in their letters seldom say anything about their faults. Perhaps uh, Corinthians might be an exception. But by and large, they write to these churches with words of commendation concerning their graces. We read in Hebrews 11 how it extols Abraham for his faith. But we don't read in Hebrews 11 anything about Abraham's equivocation about his wife. Rahab's faith is magnified. Nothing said about her lying. Why? It's because God saw the light in their hearts. And he, wasn't, he was inspiring, you see, the writing of a book about his new creation. And therefore, he doesn't care to say anything about the darkness that's still there. He is concerned to say what he wants to say about the light and the grace that he's put there. He saw that light. And he sees it in you as well. And so we have a divine proclamation, divine observation. But now in the third place, notice with me, we have in this text divine approbation. In verse 4 we read, And God saw the light, that it was good. In particular, I want to focus here upon those words, that it was good. And this is the first of these of seven such benedictions in Genesis 1. He sees that it's good. good. And the greatest of all artists, he stops at various points to admire his handiwork. And he's pleased, even though the work is incomplete at that state. He's, it's not the finished product, and yet he's pleased. It's good what he's accomplished. He, he's, he can go to bed that night. It measures up to his expectations. Maybe you've wanted to paint or draw, and you've gotten one of those books that shows you step number one about how to do a portrait and how you draw the egg-shaped face and maybe recognize the other shapes maybe of different types of faces and, and then how you, after you pencil in, you see the basic outline, how you put in certain colors, the basic background colors into your painting. And it, it tells you about how to do it step by step. And so an artist, you, you see, can only have maybe perhaps the early stages completed at certain points, but he knows that the steps he's about to take, and he can look at what he's done so far, it can be pleased, he can be satisfied. Or take a composer. He may only have the main melody and a few basic variations of a certain motif on his paper. But he can go to the piano, you see. He can play what he's written down, and he can go to bed that night satisfied that he's made some progress that day. He's got a lot to do before the symphony is done, but he got a start that day. I often enjoy listening to classical music while I'm reading or while I'm writing out a sermon. And I usually tend to block out the little things that are being said about the piece before they're about to be played. 
But one of the most fascinating segments that I've ever listened to of, of this kind of a nature, it happened to be the particular segment on a Saturday evening in which the New York Philharmonic is featured for two hours. And there are oftentimes recordings, there are almost always recordings of uh, concerts that uh, take place. And one of the most fascinating segments that I ever have listened to is one or two, actually, concerts in which Leonard Bernstein led the concert. So these are years ago, but they still have these recordings. And what was so fascinating to me about these particular concerts is that he would take a piece, and he, particularly Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, his most famous symphony, and he, would, he must have worked together with the orchestra in advance to be able to do all of this. Because he says, okay, now, if Beethoven had written it this way, this is how it would sound. He had this choice of making this the next step, and he would have the whole orchestra play it that way. And he would say, well, do you see how that's not quite as dynamic as what he actually put there? And then he, or then he takes another example. And this is the way Beethoven, it seems, composed, composed some of his music. His manuscripts are notoriously difficult to read. And... He built his symphonies like towering structures. They were pieces of architecture with different motifs woven together and repeated in, in almost an infinite variety of ways. His fertile mind had conceived any number of ways in which the next bar could be written. And he wasn't satisfied until it had done exactly what he wanted it to be to have it done at that particular point. And no doubt, after each of these stages of his work, Beethoven must have been satisfied at the accomplishment thus far. Now, of course, with God's creative work, there's no such thing as trying it this way and then trying it that way until he finally gets the right way. But each stage, as he does what he does, he sees what he's created and he sees that it's good. It meets up to his expectations. Now, the word good, it can mean anything that's beautiful. In Exodus 2 and verse 2, we read that when Moses' mother gave birth to him, she saw that he was a beautiful child. It's the Hebrew word tov, translated beautiful. And in other places, though, the same word, it's used to stress not something that's so beautiful, but something that measures up to its usefulness or its purpose. And... In Genesis chapter 1, in the seven places where God saw what he had made and that it was good, it's likely that the main idea in those places is that what he had just created perfectly measured up to God's intention with respect to that part of his creative work. But I think, no doubt, at various points, the idea of beauty, it, it, it's also there. So I don't want to rule out either of these, and perhaps both of them are present in each time when he, God looks at what he sees what he, and, he, and he says, it's good. God is making a place that's going to be the perfect habitat for human beings. But the beauty that we see all around us, even in this fallen, cursed state of the earth, it's stunning in its beauty. It's glorious. It's beautiful what God made. I often tell people I like in, in New York the part that God made. I love to see what God made in this state. And I don't have time to develop this observation, but we should at least mention that what God is looking at with complacency and delight is his material creation. And the early church was influenced by Platonism, which made the, the spiritual be the only thing important, and the material you see is kind of evil. 
But obviously, Moses didn't have this idea when he wrote Genesis chapter 1. It's all about a material creation. Interesting, not a word here in this chapter about the creation of the angels, right? We have to go to other parts of the Bible to find bits and pieces there about, about the angels. But it's a maternal world. That's all we have the record of here. And God sees that it's good. And so the material world used in the right way is not evil in and of itself. But I do want to highlight a few features of the light that God created and how it manifested the goodness that gave such delight to God as he looked at it. And we're not going to be able to get down to our next main point, but let me mention uh, these, I think, three, three traits here. In the first place, God saw that it was good because of its source. It has to be good because of what it came from. Now, the question of how there was light on the earth before the sun was created, before day four, this brings us back to the biblical view of reality which never separates God in the deistic fashion from the elements that he created. There isn't the idea that God just kind of folds his hands and let the whole process kind of unfold on its own. He's intimately concerned every step of the way. And we're not given any details about how this light came into being and and how it was that there was this light and how it differed from the sun that was appointed to be the light bearer later on in the week. And we know that it's not necessary for the light to be located in the sun because of the new heavens and the new earth. There is going to be no sun, it says, in the book of Revelation. Because the Lord God will be their light. And in Genesis 1, verses 3 to 5, the light is not said to be the Lord himself. It's a created light. But it doesn't have to be located in the sun. God is perfectly able to have a created source of light that for the first three days awaits the, the embodiment of that light in the sun. And our main point here is that this light is good because of the goodness of its source. This created light, it was from a God that's described as light and in whom is no darkness at all. He's the one that dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16. Novation, who was one of the, he was, he was the first church father in the early church to write a full-length treatise on the Trinity. And Novation stated that creation is good because the creator is good. And he went on to beautifully represent the truth that God is the original standard of goodness and beauty, not anything outside of God. And in his book on the Trinity, this is what he says. What could you possibly say then that would be worthy of him? He is more sublime than all sublimity higher than all heights, deeper than all depth, clearer than all light, brighter than all brilliance, more splendid than all splendor, stronger than all strength, mightier than all might, more beautiful than all beauty, truer than all truth, more enduring than all endurance, greater than all majesty, richer than all riches, wiser than all wisdom, kinder than all kindness. Better than all goodness, juster than all justice, more merciful than all mercy. Every kind of virtue must of necessity be less than he who is the God and source of all virtue. Marvelous statement. In like fashion, the light that God implants in our hearts 
This is good because it came from a good source. It came from God. As every good and every perfect gift comes from God, the light that shines into our hearts, it's good because it comes from Him. And notice also, not only the source, but also its likeness. This is why it's good. Light is like God. Even the physical phenomena with its electromagnetic forces, this is a thing that it seems spiritual. You can't see the rays of light, can you? Except maybe some dust that happens to be floating through the rays at a moment. But it penetrates the air and you can't see it. You can't grasp it with your hand. And maybe this is why the Holy Spirit uses it as a type of God and speaks of God as being light in whom is no darkness at all. Now certainly the new nature implanted by God, it's like God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as in a temple. This light is spiritual in nature. And this is why we have to be careful not to allow our hearts to be polluted by anything that's contrary to the purity of that God who is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Apostolic Father Ignatius, the Apostolic Fathers were the ones that were still alive when the Apostles were alive. They came after the Apostles, but they remembered the teaching of the Apostles. One of them was Ignatius. Ignatius used to call himself the Theophorus, the God-bearer. Now this, to our ears, it might sound kind of presumptuous, it might sound kind of pompous, I'm the God-bearer. But what he was saying was simply this, God dwells in me. I take him wherever I go. I've got to be holy, therefore. God's made me his temple. This is what I have to be. I have to be holy. I'm the temple of the one who is light. How careful should we be, therefore, as we think of this thought. And so this light is wonderful. It's good because it's like God. And then it's also good because of its glory. God could look at the light that he created with complacency and delight because in every way it glorified him. The Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle in the wilderness, it seems to have been something of a luminescent cloud during the day and a bright cloud by night. And in the day, perhaps it, in a sense, served to conceal the glory, the blazing glory of the one that dwells in unapproachable light. It was a manifestation of the glory of that one who dwells in that light. And it's this divine light that causes the holy angels to cover their faces when they fly back and forth in his presence. It's one of the supreme manifestations of the glory of God. God is light. It's not very many things that are said. God is love, it says. God is light. It doesn't say that about some of the other attributes. In a special way, God is holy light, pure light. And it's this divine light, you see, that has entered into our hearts. And it's one of the supreme manifestations of God's glory. It therefore prostrates us in the dust. It brings us to the place where we, where we put our faces down, but we lift him up in our hearts and our minds. And the more there is of this light in our souls, the more we glorify him the more we magnify him. And there's something about the very purpose of this opening chapter of the Bible that should first and foremost make us fall down in our faces and worship the magnificent and glorious 
and brilliant God that did such things as we read in this chapter. As we meditate on what he did on the first day, it should fill our hearts with adoring wonder, fetch from our lips hymns of praise. And following the order of Genesis 1, in Psalm 104, the psalmist begins with the very beginning of of Genesis 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You were clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as a garment. This was set forth, as it were, in the very forefront of the very Bible, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Its glory, therefore, reflects the glory of God, and therefore, as the Lord God sees the light that he made, it is good because of what it does in reflecting his glory. But we don't have time to move on to the fourth and fifth points. The divine separation, how God divided the light from the darkness. And then how after the separation, there was a divine nomination. He gave names to the day and to the night. And perhaps we'll have a few words to say about those points when we meet again. But may the Lord use what we have preached this morning to cause those of you that are in this room, in whose hearts there's still darkness, to plead with God that he would show you Jesus. Be like those ones that came to the disciples and said, we want to see Jesus. The Greeks came, we want to see him. And may God shine into your heart to give you a sight of that glory. And those of us who do know him, we are light bearers, we are Theophorus, we are God bearers. And therefore, we should walk in the light as he is light. We should keep our temples holy. We keep our bodies holy and use them for holy purposes. Keep our minds and thoughts holy. Use our computers for holy purposes. Use our families for holy and and not for selfish purposes. May the Lord help us to reflect the light that God himself has put into our hearts. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you, we bless you that you've given to us this amazing description of what you did right at the very beginning of your creative work. We pray that you who did this so long ago would continue to repeat your creative work by shining into the hearts of many, even in this room, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we pray that those of us who have seen the Lord Jesus in this way by faith and have received him by faith, that we would live as those that have been enlightened, that we would not go back to those ways of darkness. Sin is always in the darkness. It wants to hide in the darkness. Righteousness is pure and holy. Help us, Lord, to be holy as you are holy. Illumine our hearts more and more so that we will live in such a manner O Lord, our our hearts are prone to wander, as we sometimes sing, prone to depart from you, just as the Israelites we read of in a scripture reading. Time after time, O Lord, we're amazed at how patient you are. Lord, help us not to try your patience. Help us to be tender, to repent, and to walk in a way that you would have us to walk, even in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his blessed name. Amen.